Good morning. Now that I'm uh, mic'd up, ready to go. First, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 5, we're finishing up. And uh, very slowly, but surely going through First Thessalonians, and we are in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. You know, I, I really just wanted to do, well, actually, I am going to do 16 and 17 and 18. And, uh, and then I got caught up in 18, and then I might go back to 17. Uh, so, hey, just follow along, okay? Open up your outlines. <laughs> That's why I got an outline. That way we can all keep, to, keep up and know what's going on, amen? So uh, open up your Bibles to First Thessalonians, chapter 5. Verses 14 and 15. One of the things that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, actually all, all of 1 Thessalonians, is that we have a shepherd, Paul, and he's shepherding the sheep from a distance. And what he's trying to do is trying to get the word across and trying to get uh, the information to these people in Thessalonica because he's heard of their, uh, well, of their situation. Paul was concerned. Remember, he left Thessalonica in a hurry. He was escorted out, uh, to say lightly, but really he was chased out of town. And um, and so he left this small group of people that and believers that he had just discipled. He had just led them to the Lord. And so as he had led them to the Lord, what he had done was give them some information as far as the Old Testament, because remember, they didn't have all the New Testament at that time. And so they gave, they, he left them with the Old Testament, all the law, everything that Jesus Christ fulfilled, because he saw, he was able to see, just like every all the other apostles, they were able to see that the prophesied one, the one that was supposed to come and be tortured and murdered and crucified, and we've been over this a few times in Psalm 22, how they have pierced his hands and his feet, how they pierced his side, as the psalmist is saying in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, and how they also crucified him. It was like the rider is underneath the cross 850 years prior to the birth of Christ and recording what he is seeing because God is showing him. So all these things were prophesied about the Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title, the Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. And if you want to recognize him a little bit better, it's uh, Yeshua bar uh, Jonah or Jesus, the son of uh, Joseph. And so he was the son of Joseph. And, he, and that was basically his last name. But Jesus Christ, the Christ, the anointed one, he fulfilled everything that the Old Testament talked about. And so Paul was about this journey, going out into the cities and talking to people about this salvation that is now to all those that God has called and has elected and pulled aside and says, you are mine, you are mine, and I'm giving you the salvation from the foundations of the world, and it has been completed through Jesus Christ. It is finished. And as he is proclaiming this gospel message, as the apostle Peter did in the first message, the first sermon after Pentecost, he, he shares the history of the Old Testament. He shares how all these things that were written about him. And Jesus told the men to, on the road to uh, Emmaus, he says, how, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets and the writings and Moses had wrote about the Christ. And what Jesus is talking to them about is all these things that were written about him. And how Jesus Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. And, and it was always about grace. And Paul is talking about grace. He says that grace is amazing. It is free because we can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't do anything for it. God gives it to you, grace, and you don't deserve it. That's the total definition of grace. Grace is something that we don't deserve. 
And God gives it to us because it's His. And He gives it to whom He wants to, who He desires to, those from the foundations of the world. And so Paul is proclaiming this message. He's, say, he's calling people out. He says, you know, you're in sin. You rebelled. You've offended a holy God. And, and blood is due. And someone has to pay. Praise God that Jesus Christ paid the price, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus, is what Peter tells us. And so as as Paul is in this mindset of sharing this gospel of God with everyone that he comes in contact with, he says, you need to repent. And you need to repent, and you need to not only repent, but you need to change the way you live. Confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. And then the evidence of that is your repented life. I no longer do the things that I did before. And, and so as Paul is sharing these things with them, he, he, he really is helping them and, and developing them. And as, as we said from the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians, the people in Thessalonica, they were a model church because he only had a limited time to spend with them. He is rushed out of town and he sends Timothy back to see, how, how are these guys doing? We don't even know if what we said even took fruit or took root and developed any fruit. Timothy comes back with this beautiful testimony. They're growing, Paul. Not only are they growing, but they're proclaiming the gospel everywhere. And they are just excited about the things that you taught them and how the Holy Spirit is just revealing to them all that it was written and all the things that you had talked to them about. And they're sharing their faith and they're sharing, but they have some concerns. They asked me, Timothy says to Paul, what about those that have died in Christ? We remember you talking about the rapture. Remember how, you know, has the, what's going to happen to them? Paul explains it to them in chapter 4, and he says, well, you know, I don't want you to be ignorant, or I don't want you to be uninformed, but those who died in Christ, or those who sleep in Christ, they will rise first, and those of us that are left behind will be caught up. And then he goes on to say, I don't want you to be ignorant about the day of the Lord. I, I want you to know that the day of the Lord is coming. We spent some time on that. And so Paul is telling them to prepare and get ready. And in chapter 5, as we started to see this a little bit more, what Paul starts to do is he not only talks about the day of the Lord and those who have fallen asleep in Christ, but now he says, I, I want to give you some final instructions. I want you to, to also to understand that there are things that the sheep must do and the things that the shepherd must do. There is a shepherd-sheep relationship, and we talked about that last week. And today we're going to talk about verses uh, 14 and on. But just to recap, in verse 12, we, we say this in chapter 5, he says, um, and, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you know that there's a pew uh, Bible in front of you. If you, First Thessalonians is on page 988, it coincides with my Bible. Uh, and, and it goes like this, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves as we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted." Help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Father in heaven, thank you for this portion of scripture that we're able to go through today. We thank you for how it's been preserved all these years since the time that Paul penned it to the people in Thessalonica, that we here are able to hear it for ourselves. And Lord, I know that it made sense to the people at that time and help it to make sense to us today. Help us to, re, to take the timeless principles that were applied at that time and apply them to our life today. 
Lord, we want to know who these idle are. We want to know who the faint-hearted are. We want to know who the weak are and those that uh, just tend to want to do evil amongst the sheep. So this morning, I pray that you walk us through this portion of Scripture. Bring into light what's already been revealed. Helping us to understand and apply it, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. As I mentioned, Paul is, uh, is talking to the sheep. He says, these are the responsibilities of the shepherd. These are the responsibilities of the sheep. It was difficult for Paul to disciple leaders. It was difficult for him to bring them up because he was so far away. But somehow he was able to institute leaders and leaders kind of rise up to the top. You ever notice that anytime you belong to a group or you belong to a, someone in, in the, within the family, there's always a person that rises up to leadership of some sort. He's the loudest and also the most influential and, and also, you know, sometimes kind of understands what's going on and the dynamics of the group and the dynamics of the family. And that, that's the person that becomes a leader in, in, in any situation. And when, when there's, when it's on a job site, the, the employers, the foremans, the uh, superintendents, they recognize this within the, the, the group. In a, in a club or in a ministry or whatever the case may be, the pastor would recognize this. And, and it's always affirmed by the people. You know, that, that makes, that makes sense, you know, because he's, he's always, you know, coming up with some great ideas and, leading us to do these things, you know, and so there's that good leadership, and of course there's that bad leadership, those that want the leadership so that they can lord it over people, and so Paul was very careful, he says, look, when you pick your leaders, and it looks like you guys got some good leaders, you need to understand that you have to, you need to submit to them, respect them, those who labor among you, because they're praying over you, they're helping you in your situations, in all the, the causes and things that you're trying to get away from in the world, where you were at before, your relationships, your spouse, your kids, your job, and, and now this whole new life that you have in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is telling you to forsake the world and to embrace Jesus Christ. Jesus came not to bring peace. We're coming to the time of the year where we celebrate peace on earth and mercy mild. That, beloved, is a song. That is not theology. That's not a theologically great phrase, but we sing it anyways, and we live by it. You know, Jesus came to bring peace. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword to divide father against son, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, because what's going to happen is when you proclaim to be a Christian, when you come out and says, I'm following Jesus Christ, I am a disciple of Christ. When you come out to say that, then all of a sudden, everything else changes. And if it doesn't, you need a check your faith, because your commitment to Christ should make a difference in the world. And you don't have to say anything. It's just by the things that you do, the things that you say, the places that you go, or the places that you don't go, and the things that you don't say. We're starting a Bible study for men, October, the first Saturday of October. We're going to start at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I want to invite all you men to come. And, And this discipleship ministry is not a Christian ministry. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to bluntly say it out right now. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. You know, the the connotation of a Christian and the word of a Christian is just kind of sometimes laughable. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I do this. I'm a Christian, and I go here. I'm a Christian, and we, you know, we, we whatever the case may be. I'm in love. That's why we're living together. You know, but, but, but we're Christians, and God knows my heart. Yes, he knows your heart. Jeremiah says that it's wicked and deceitful. And, and the whole bottom thing, line about being a Christian, it was first recognized in this city called Antioch. People were coming to the city and they were 
blaming them or looking at them and saying, you're kind of like that, that Christos, that Christos that was put on the cross. You're, you're these little Christos or Christianos is what they called them in Greek. And, and in the Greek term, little Christs is what they were trying to do in a derogatory sense. But the word that we have taken upon ourselves as a church is the word Christian. Now, I'm not bashing Christians. I'm just saying if you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian, then live like Christ. However, Jesus' favorite term for us is disciples. Over 600, over 260 times, he uses the word disciple. Disciple, disciple. You're my disciple. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Of men, the 12 disciples, or actually the disciples that became the 12 apostles. And a new believer is known to be a disciple. We are going to dive in on Saturday morning, men, on what is a disciple. And I can tell you right now, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is an apprentice. One that follows his master, his teacher. And Jesus picked these 12 men. And the commitment I made last week is I'm going to take one man, just one man. Now, if we get two, that's great. We're, 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 before, we're above the game. If we get three or four, fantastic. But I'm just looking for one man, one person that's willing to become a disciple, and I'm going to invest in this person for a year. Next year, us two men are going to take two other men. And those two, those four together, we're going to do that for the next year. And those four the following year, we're going to get four more. You see how this multiplies? That's discipleship. I know it's a long process. But it's a process that helps. It's been proven. We've done it here. And now it's time to ramp it up and do it one more time. And start getting his disciples built up and sent out. Christians, on the other hand, are people that come to church. They commit, they raise their hands, commit their life to the Lord, and go back out and live as they did before. And it's unfortunate. And I, I, I hate to even say that, but, but that's the mentality that people have of a Christian. I remember there was one time I was picking up some material at this place and, and the guy asked me, and him and his helper were helping me, and the guy asked me, he says, so what do you guys do? Oh, we're going to use it at our church. And he stands up and says, well, I go to church. And his helper says, you do? <laughs> oh, yeah, you should have seen his face turn all red. I go, that's not good. <laughs> that he, this is the first time he's heard it. And then he questions the fact that you go to church. Beloved, let that not be you. I pray that as Jesus Christ has transformed your life, and has changed it, that people can recognize there's something different about this disciple. And what we're going to do is going to dive into that. And Paul is looking at the people at Thessalonica. He says, you guys are growing. This is a model church. This is how it should be done. They've been discipling each other. And so he writes them this letter. There was some concerns about the rapture. There was some concerns about the day of the Lord. And there was some concerns about the leadership. This is why Paul is saying, you need to honor them. You need to respect them. Uh, 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 that Those that labor over you and are trying to help you. And they admonish you. Admonishment seems to be like a harsh word. But really it's more instructing and teaching and helping the person come to be the, the fullness of what Jesus Christ has called you to be. Not for your glory, not for your job, not for this world, but for the kingdom. Everything that God has blessed you with and has given you is for the kingdom of God. And then he says, and esteem them very high in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, he says. And then in verse 14, our, our topic, and we urge you, brothers, admonish, there's that word again, the idol. 
Admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. And so as, as Paul is talking to the sheep, he's talking to the, he's talked to the shepherds. He's talked about what they do. Now he's going back to the sheep and he says, number one, in your outlines, he says, I want you to admonish the idle sheep. I want you to admonish the idle sheep. When we talk about admonishment, when we talk about what that means and how that comes across, the word uh, admonish is really more, like I said, is a, is a teaching word. It's, it's not this word that you, you yell at them or you come down on them, but you want to come alongside them. You want to come alongside them and help them and encourage them. As a matter of fact, when he says at the very beginning, and we urge you. He says, you know that word barakaleo? Barakaleo is the word that we use for uh, baraklitas, our, our, our counselor, our Holy Spirit, the one that comes alongside you. He says, barakaleo, he says, I urge, I want you to come alongside. I want to come alongside you, that you come alongside the people that need this help. Admonish them. Do this in love, Paul is saying. And, and this barakaleo, I'm, I'm urging you, I'm, I'm begging you. I just want you, to, I want to come alongside you, not to lord it over you. This is a plea of a pastor's heart that goes out to his sheep. He says, you know, do this because we are to be united. Paul, more than anyone else, understood the struggles that the sheep have. You know, sheep butt heads, don't they? All the time. You know, and they, they kind of bite each other and they're unruly, we're going to see here in a little bit. And so Paul says, I, I want you to do this. And, and the, the first group I want you to uh, do this for is the idol. The, those which are, you know, uh, this word here in Greek, it's often used in, in a military context and refers to a soldier who is out of rank, who is out of step, who is disorderly, insubordinate, in, in a sense where he's idle. He's just not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Some of your translations might have, like for instance, the King James New American Standard might have the word unruly, the unruly. Those that just, you know, refuse to do what the Bible says. You know, I'm a Christian. That's all I need. Once saved, always saved, right? And so doesn't matter what my life reflects, I'm going to heaven. That's more of a Gnostic thinking of thinking that, you know, it's the flesh that is bad. So I can do whatever I want with my flesh because my spirit is going to heaven anyways. And, and, and so the thought was that, you know, if, if you're saved and Jesus Christ has already saved you, said, what, what's the purpose of having to be good? I'm going to heaven anyways. Well, beloved, anybody with that kind of an attitude really just shows that you're really not saved. You really don't understand the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross for us. You really don't understand the, the, the pain and the agony. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross just so you can be happy. You know? God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? No. <laughs> I mean, happiness comes from following Jesus, but that's not the purpose that Jesus Christ died for you. So he can heal your back or your diseases or your illnesses or your knees or whatever the case may be. Jesus died on the cross to make you holy. And holiness is what we ought to pursue, not happiness. And this constitution of the United States, God bless America, I have nothing against what they're saying, but this pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness is, is, is a goal of the people. And the problem is, is that that happiness or the goal of pursuing happiness has infiltrated into the church. And we have forgotten that our purpose is not to pursue this happiness, though it is our God-given right. But our God-given Savior that died for me, died for me so that I can pursue holiness. And as we pursue holiness, guess what? Happiness comes from that. But as you pursue happiness, I, I come here to say, uh, unfortunately, it really produces unholiness. 
And this is what happens with the idol, the unruly that, you know, they believe that this is all I need to go. And Paul says, I, I want you to, to, to pursue it and admonish them, to help them because they are going through some struggles. As a matter of fact, in, in your outline in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, uh, verse 6, uh, the first part is, in other words, says we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness or unruliness. See, being unruly or idle within the church, it, it was such a danger for Paul that he says, you know, I want you guys to stay away from people like that because they're going to suck you right in. What did Paul say? It is bad character that corrupts a good witness, a good character. It is that bad conduct that, you know, it's, it's easier to pull somebody down than to pick somebody up. But I'm trying to help him. I'm trying to help him. And I, and I really want them to, to know who you are and your love, Lord Jesus. And, and I'm just going to kind of hang out with them. And, and, you know, sometimes people that do this, they, they live vicariously through their life. They're looking at them, do all this evil and ungodly things. And, and they kind of like, whoa, you know, I, I can't do that. And it's people that, that like to walk up to the edge, you know, and, and the Bible says, no, stay away from the edge. As a matter of fact, I, you need to flee from that edge. Don't be getting close to that edge. The, but I'm trying to help my brother. You know, all you can do is tell him, look, you're in sin. And if you don't repent, you're going to hell. I mean, I, I don't know how much clearer you can get by, by trying to live his lifestyle or their lifestyle. The unruly idleness of lifestyle is not going to bring them back until they come to recognize that their life is in sin. Now, as Paul is talking about, he's not talking about those that are unsaved. He's talking about the church. <laughs> you know, this is funny. You know, there's people in the church that like to live that lifestyle of idleness. I'm good. I'm all right. As a matter of fact, he says in 1 Timothy 5.13, he says, uh, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossipers and busybodies saying what they should not. Because an idler, one that's just kind of doing whatever he wants to do, eventually becomes a gossiper, eventually goes around and talking to people about things that they shouldn't be doing. The second thing that Paul says, he says, I want you to encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are those that are, well, depressed or just worried more than, more than anything else. They're, they're those, they are those that are worried about everything. I mean, they worry about all kinds of things. You know, Jesus had a word to say about that. He, Jesus said, he says, you know, why do you worry? Why? It's, it's unnatural to worry. He says, look at the birds. Nature takes care of them. My father takes it. Look at the flowers. Look how be, you know, it's, it's a natural, you know, if God is going to take care of the birds and he's going to take care of the flowers, how, how much more is he going to take care of you? Oh, you of little faith. Then he goes on to say, it's, it's the pagans that should worry. It's unchristian to worry. They have something to worry about, you know, because they don't have a father. And when we worry, we're basically saying, you know, God does not exist. Beloved, I'm sorry to say that. Jesus was very adamant. At the end of that, that statement in the, in the Beatitudes, he goes on to say, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things are going to be added unto you. Matthew 6.33. And, and this is the, these are the things that he adds upon us when we don't worry. Now, the antidote to worry is worship. You see, worry causes me to focus on the negative. And focus, and every time that my mind is so focused on the negative, I worry on the things that are going to happen, the things that might happen, the things that didn't happen yesterday, the things that are going to happen tomorrow, the things that I can't get done today. And all that does worry, you worry about the past. I can't change the past. You worry about the future. I can't control the future. All it does is it messes up your today. 
And tomorrow morning you wake up and you think, wow, man, why did I worry about that stuff? I shouldn't have been worried, but then that nothing. And then you start all over again and the cycle repeats itself. And every morning, a worried, frantic, worrisome, faint-hearted person always wakes up with food in his belly. Always wakes up with something to eat, with the roof over their head, with some, you know, and of course I know that there's those that are out in the, the outskirts of society that, that, that are homeless. But for the most part, a Christian, a genuine Christian, should not worry. Focus on the negative. The antidote to worry is worship. When you worship on God, you focus on God. Thank you, Lord, for my morning. Thank you for my coffee. Thank you for my bed. Thank you for my home. You know, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I made it yesterday, Lord, by your help. And I know you're going to help me today. And today I'm going to worship. Today I'm going to just lift you up because worship and worry cannot exist in the same vacuum. It's like water and oil. The Holy Spirit and worry cannot mix together. Because when you're, you're worried about something, then you're not worshiping. But when you're worshiping about some, about Jesus Christ, or you're worshiping God, then worry can't exist. And what do we do most? We worry. We worry about the past. We worry about today. We worry about tomorrow. We can't change the past, can't control tomorrow. All it does is it messes up our day. And the faint-hearted, Paul says to them, come alongside them. Say to them, uh, to those that are anxious, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with re recompense of God. He will come and save you. In Philippians 1.29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. One of the things that these people were worried about was having to go through the same persecution that Paul did and the same persecution that the people are going through. One of the biggest worries for Christians for believers, is that they're going to be singled out. They're going to be singled out, especially in jobs, especially in our culture today. I don't know if you've noticed within the last 50 years, since 1973, actually it started in the early 70s, but 50 years, 73 to 23. In the last 50 years, laws have been passed incrementally to get us to the point where becoming a Christian is now almost illegal. I remember years ago when my kids were going to high school, there was a, a law passed, the California State Assembly bill that was passed. I can't remember which one, but it, it gave the children, the kids, the right to seek an abortion without the parents' consent. At that time, that, that was, and it's still in law, a law. At that time, you couldn't even give a child an aspirin without the parents' consent. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't give them medication. We can't. And incrementally, it's just been deteriorated slowly but surely, and we have been asleep. And now, as you know, California is suing Chino Valley. Chino Valley or Chino, the city of Chino, Chino, they have a school district there that has said, because a law has been passed in California that if, if a child wants to be transgender, then what they can do is just do it without notifying their parents. They can take the hormone blockers. They can take, you know, all these surgeries that, that can just, I don't even want to go there, that massacres a child without the parents' consent. Chino Valley says, oh, no, we can't do that. And so they put a law into effect that says, if a, person, if a child is considered to be or wants to be, they need to tell their parents so their parents can talk with them and, and find the best solution for them. Well, the, the state of California is now suing that school district. And they're saying, you have no right over your children. We know what's best for them. They, it is unconstitutional for the school district to do this. To me, it's... It's not about a constitution or it's just it's just common sense. 
incrementally what's been happening here, beloved. And, and you know, and now if you say something like I just said, I can get thrown in jail. If you go and you talk to somebody that's, that you're trying to give them this conversion therapy. And so people are faint hearted. They're saying, you know, I, I don't want to say, any, I don't want to say anything. I'll just live my life right here, you know, and I just, I'm not going to do anything. You know, I'm just going to not say nothing. That's not what you were called to do. Now, Chino Valley, uh, which is, which is pretty, I think, coincidental. Uh, there's a pastor named, there named Jack Hibbs. I don't know if you've heard him, Calvary Chapel Chino. And, and he is a proponent for, you know, there's just all this ugliness that's going on in the country. And since it's in Chino Valley, this is it. We can do it here. And now they're being sued. The, po- the problem is, the point that I'm trying to make is that the, the laws have been placed and they're there. And now, when you rise up to be a Christian, your voice is considered to be hate speech. And you are now an enemy of the state because of the laws that have been changed. What is a disciple going to do? I can tell you what a Christian will do, but what are you as a disciple willing to do? Jesus said this, anyone who come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. You see, for the disciples back then, they knew what the cross meant. They knew what this, he didn't say, oh, I want you to go to, uh, I want you to go to a jewelry store and pick out the, the finest cross that you can find, one with diamonds, one with gold, the bigger the better, wrap it around your neck and show everybody that you're Christians. And if you're ever scared, just pick it up and all the evil spirits will flee you. That's not what he meant. The cross in the day of Jesus Christ, everyone knew what that meant. When you pick up a cross, it never leaves you. The cross follows you to your death. It does not compromise. It does not, it does not barter with you. That cross is your death sentence. And Jesus says, I want you to pick it up. And, and those that were able to pick up a cross and carry it, they knew that it was the end. That was just the beginning of the torture, of the persecution that was to come. The cross always wins. The cross always takes its captor. The cross always destroys the person that carries it. Jesus says, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and take up that cross. Or otherwise, you, you can't be my disciple. Don't even bother. He says, you know, don't even bother. I know what a Christian would do. They would go to a jewelry store. That's what Jesus wanted me. This is the biggest cross I can find. I'm going to get one for my house. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, in the Beatitudes in 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. There is this persecution that is to come. And what Paul is talking to the people in Thessalonica, he says, I want you to encourage those that are idle. Well, first of all, I want you to admonish them. And I want you to encourage the faint-hearted. Let them know that, you know what, they're, they're, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is going to be theirs just, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. The third thing, dealing with the weak, the weak sheep. I like that. That sounds good. The weak sheep. As a matter of fact, Paul says, help the weak. Help them. Bring them up. In Romans 15, 1, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Not to please ourselves. Not to point fingers. Not to, you know, see, I told you. you know, we need to come alongside them. Because, beloved, like I said a little while ago, it's not that I'm knocking a Christian. Is if there's a person that calls himself a Christian is not living up to it, we need to come alongside them. 
You know, what's the interesting thing, though, is one of the things that happens when you come alongside a weak Christian sheep. What they do is a sheep, you know, when he's hurt, when he's injured and he's just, you know, not he doesn't want any help. Matter of fact, he bucks the shepherd away. The shepherd almost has to knock him upside the head with the staff. He just settle down. I'm trying to help you. You know, you keep getting tangled up in this barbed wire every time you take off. And you, you know, and so what the shepherd does is he breaks the leg of the sheep. That way he don't run away. He bandages it up. He anoints it with oil and he helps the sheep and he puts it on splint and he carries that sheep on his shoulders. And he loves that sheep and he heals that sheep and he brings that sheep back to its full standing. And once it is healed, the shepherd puts a bell on that sheep. That sheep has now learned a lesson. We need to come alongside and encourage and, and tell people, you're in sin, brother. We, we, we don't come to the church. That's the opposite of what Jesus taught. If someone is in sin, you go to him and you present your case. If you win him over, then great. It's all about reconciliation. If he doesn't listen to you, then what you do is you take another person with you. And if you win him over, reconciliation, then fantastic. But if he doesn't, then you bring it to the church. My experience has been many times people bring it to the church first. What's going on? I've had people come up to me and says, oh, hey, I need to tell you something about that. What's going on? Oh, you know, so-and-so, you know, they've been doing it. Wait, wait, hold on. Have you talked to them? No, I haven't talked to them. Okay, hold on. Hey, John, come here. What? Come here. No, no, I don't want, he has something to say to you. And I walk away. Bring it to the person. You will find more, more times than any that if you bring it to the person, they're not even going to realize. They've been in this idleness for such a long time, or they've been faint-hearted for such a long time, that now they've gotten to the point of weakness because of everything that they've been doing. They come to, you know, you're right, man. I, I, what, what, can, you, can you help me? Yes, that's why I'm here. I'm here to help you, not point fingers, not to kick you down. The, the Christian army is the only army that kicks its wounded when they're down. And that's what a Christian would do. But a disciple of Jesus Christ would come alongside that Christian and help the weak and give them. Ephesians 4, 14 up here on the, the, the screen. So that many may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know, there's all kinds of human doctrines out there right now. There's doctrines of demons out there. They're saying all kinds of things, and they sound religious, and they sound very spiritual, and they sound like, well, that, that is just so, so insightful, you know, but, but it's, it doesn't come from the Word of God. These are these doctrines that people just make up. Like, you know, when you die, you, 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 go, to, you go to heaven, but you can come back. If God isn't done with you yet, and if you come back, then that's a great thing. You know, because now you can give your testimony as to what you saw in heaven. And most of the time, the things that people say they saw in heaven are things that are already in the Bible. And, and a lot of times people come back with this message. I had one guy tell me, you know, I've died and come back into life and I've died and gone to heaven, and come back four or five different times. I go, really? He says, yeah. He says, well, what did God tell you? He told me to come tell people that, that he's coming back soon. I go, well, I know that. No, but what else he tell you? He said, well, then we have to get ready. He said, what do you think about that? And he says, well, I, don't, I, I, I can't tell you what I think about it. I can tell you what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that, you know, once you die, man is destined to die once and then be judged. That's what the Bible says. You know what the next thing he said to me? He says, well, you, you know how the Bible contradicts itself all the time. Okay, so my understanding of his theology was he's going by, based on experience. 
And people base theology on experience, what they've experienced, what they've seen. But what does the Bible say? Oh, the Bible's, you know, it's got all kinds of, I don't know. I don't, I don't read that. I, I, I hear from God. You want to hear from God? You really want to hear from God? Here it is. That's his word. Beloved, this is it. You don't need nothing else. You don't. And you need to know that we, you know, you need to know straight up front from here, from us, we, we believe in what's called a closed canon. Everything we need to know about God, everything we need to know, not everything we want to know, is right here. There are a lot of things I want to know, but everything I need to know is right here. And I personally have not, in the last 30 years, have not exhausted this book. I've been to school, I've been to seminary, I go, I go online, I read books. Every time I dive in, I find something new. And every time I go back, I mean, just in the message today, oh man, this is, I keep finding new, wow, Lord, I mean, this is, God just keeps opening it up. And I, okay, Lord, I need to stop somewhere. And beloved, I, I'm not even going to get done with today's message because of that. And, and the thing is, is that everybody wants to hear a fresh voice, a new revelation, when, when they haven't even gotten into God's word yet. There's no, there's no diving into his word. But what does his word say? Oh, well, you know how it contradicts itself. But I experienced this. And, and beloved, in the end times, the Antichrist is going to be doing signs and wonders. There are a lot of signs and wonders that are being done right now. Now, I, I know that God is the God of miracles. And he does some amazing things that just blow me away sometimes. But we're going to talk about this next week. <clears throat> well, probably now the following week. How we ought to check ourselves or test the spirits. How to test the spirits. How do you test the spirits? Well, beloved, believe it or not, John gives us a good example on how to test the spirits, and we'll go over that. So, again, in Romans 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. A lot of people think that, you know, just because he's weak, he does he's dumb. No, he's got some information. They got a lot of information that that's out there in the world and there's all these voices that are coming in and this is why we need something standard something solid we call it the canon it is the standard of our christian faith the 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 bible is the standard and we read it and we expound on it and we get into the meanings of the words so that we can get a better idea and understanding of what paul is dealing with in thessalonica and we're going to do the same thing in second thessalonians in second thessalonians we talk more about the end times we're going to, then we go into timothy and and we what is paul saying to timothy how do we pull that into what we need to understand paul says to the people in galatia 6 1 through two, uh, 1 and 2 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual shall restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see what Paul is saying here? He says, you know, don't go out to the edge. Don't see how close you can get. If you're going to get anywhere close to it, you're going to grab him and bring him back. If he's caught, you know, what you do is you, you restore him. You're in sin. Get back over here. What are you doing on that edge? Get to the place where we can pray together. We can read the Bible together. What is God's, what is God's will for our life? One of the things that I wanted to get to today, uh, which again, I'm not going to be able to. One of the things, it's in your outlines, God's will. It's the last point. I wanted to get into God's will. The Bible is very clear as to what God's will is. You know, and it's not what you think. Everybody is looking for God's will. I went online uh, yesterday, uh, how to find God's will. You know that over 500 million sites came up. 
And there's, there's a one with eight ways to find God's will, six ways to find God's will. If I was somebody looking for, well, you know, find God's will in a short stop, you know, just very quickly, instead of diving into God's word. And there was another one that said five ways. I'd keep looking for four ways. I want to do this right now. How do I find God's will in four easy steps? The one with eight steps says, well, you know, read the Bible, good, okay, you know, follow God's will, understand what he already says, and then, you know, follow the whole leading of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, follow your heart. I go, follow my heart? <laughs> my heart is deceitful, the Bible says, and wicked beyond cure. That's what Jeremiah tells me. I'm not going to follow that thing. My heart will take me all over the place. I need to follow the word of God, <laughs> not my heart, because it is wicked. And so we need to help those that are caught in transgressions. Not to ridicule them, not to put them down, to help them, build them up. And that we need to be patient with them all, every one of them. And, and dealing with the wicked sheep, this is, this is kind of uh, the evil sheep. And uh, verse five, uh, verse five, chapter 5.15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And, and there, are, there are things that go on in this world Things that have gone on in your families, things that have gone on in your work site, your job, people that seem to always want to, you know, get you upset for whatever it is that's going on. They cause the drama, then they get mad at you because you respond. <laughs> you know, they cause all this mayhem in your life, and then you get mad, and then they get mad at you. Well, what are you getting all mad about? Really? And the Bible is clear. It says, you know, don't don't repay evil with evil. As a matter of fact, what what he says is. Uh, in Proverbs 20, 22, it, this is way back then. Do not, do not say, I will repay evil. God himself says, wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. In Romans 12, verses 20 and 21, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. What? Feed your enemy. This is, I guess, where Michael Colleone got his theology or whatever. He says, you know, my father always taught me in this room, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. Okay, that's not the reason we do this. We keep our enemies close because you know what? There's something not right in their heart, in their life. Hurt people, hurt people. People that have been hurt by society, by their parents, by their loved ones. Like one brother once told me, he says, you know, I've been called worse by people that tell me they love me. You know, you, whatever you tell me is not going to hurt. <laughs> and, and hurt people hurt. And so Paul is saying, don't repay evil for evil. You know, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then he goes on to say, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this almost sounds like a slap in the face because you're trying to get them mad. No, one of two things is going to happen. These burning coals are either going to get him hot-tempered or they're going to cleanse him. You know what? I had to really think about what I'm doing here. But for the most part, what ends up happening is people that are hurting you and you're good to them, you know, they, they, they don't want anything to do with you. When you're good to them, they, they just, you know what, it, it gets them even more upset. And then he goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Yeah. Proverbs 20, 22, do want, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 32, 35. This, is, this goes way back into the Old Testament. God said, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their, full, uh, when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. 
Paul says again in Romans, to the contrary, uh, you know, what, I just, what I just mentioned, but in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the, the living God. That's the verse that we need to talk to people about. Share that verse. I want you to know something, beloved. I want you to know something, my friend, my neighbor. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Repent. Because someone has to pay for your sin. Either you're going to do it, or because it's, it's already been done. And if that you, you haven't claimed that promise that God has given you, then you're going to have to pay for it. And you think what Jesus went through was tough. It's a fearful thing to come into the hands of the living God. Because when Jesus Christ saved me, you know what Jesus Christ saved me from? Jesus, Jesus Christ saved me from going to hell. Yeah, that's right. But ultimately, Jesus Christ saved me from God himself. Because it is God that's going to dispense his vengeance, his wrath. Jesus Christ dying on the cross saved you from himself, from the lamb that opens up the scrolls. The lamb that dispenses the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That, the one that, that causes all these things to come to an end. That's what he saved you from. He saved you from himself. Because somebody has to pay. And you know, you may not like it, but that's the way God set it up. At the end, God wins. That's it. And the debt has been paid for those that are willing to claim it. And, and we wonder, okay, well, the, you know, so what do I do? I mean, how do I retaliate? I don't retaliate. Well, what do I, you just, you just feed your enemy. Give them something to eat. Continue to love on them. Cause it's, if they're still alive, it is not too late. And some of you might be asking, like the people in the book of Revelation, when, when after the, the rapture has come and those that are left behind and those that have died for Jesus Christ have been beheaded. And, and once they've been there and, and they're, they're underneath the throne and they're crying out, like in Revelation chapter six, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, Lord? How long is this going to take? When is this going to come to fruition? When are we going to, be, when is this going to be over with? And some of you, have, as, as we talked a little bit about our culture and our society today, some of you are thinking the same thing, you know, Lord, when? You know, I mean, it's being pushed to the, to the limit. I mean, I don't know how further more it can go, but beloved, it gets worse. It gets worse. And before it gets better, it gets worse. Oh, there'll be a time of peace during the tribulation for three and a half years. Antichrist will rise up and he'll have all the answers. He'll have all the answers for everybody. And he'll be saying stuff like, thank God those Christians are gone. Now we can do what we really want to do. You know, now we can really get down and party. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be left behind. They're going to be thinking, wow, I can't believe I missed it. I can't believe I missed it. I know that the only way that I can actually make it to eternal life is I have to die for Jesus. I have to die for Jesus. And you know, it's interesting. I've had people tell me, well, you know, I'll probably wait until that day. I'll wait until I have to die for Jesus. Then I'll commit my life to Christ. (laughs) You know, you're not even willing to live for Christ right now. How in the world are you going to die for him? You tell me. I'll do it. And they're crying out over and over again. And and, you know, I'm I'm just going to very quickly just go over the back of the outline. These are the sanctified sheep. 
that he's talking to. He says, okay, I want you to encourage, brothers. I want you to encourage, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, do not, be paid, do not repay evil for evil. And then he says, you know, and also rejoice always. And in three verses, 16, 17, and 18, he says, rejoice always, 17, pray without ceasing, 18, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is? There it is. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. As a matter of fact, let me do this first. Rejoice continuously. Always. Continuously. I mean, just continue to rejoice. How, how do you do that? How do you do it in this sick, depraved world? Well, once again, you got to worship. If you're going to worry about it, you're not going to be able to rejoice. You know, rejoicing is in happiness. Happiness is based upon happenstance and what, how you're conditioned, what are the things going on around you. Uh, on the, on, on being a, in, in, even being in the happiest place on the world, you, you, some of you have oh, been there. No, I, I spent two, three, four, five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. They did not make me happy. <laughs> the garbage cans even tell you to waste here. It doesn't say garbage. It doesn't say trash. It says waste here. <laughs> That's a little subliminal message to you. You can waste all your money here. Waste all your time here. Waste all your energy here. Waste here. I don't know if you've read that or not, but go next time you go to Disneyland, I want you to read that. And, and the happiest place, the happiest place you can be is when you're in the spirit, when you're displaying the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, and peace. You know, this joy that Paul is talking about is not that you're happy. You know, oh, I'm, I'm a very happy person. No, this joy is in spite of your happiness. And you got to do this always, continuously. You know, you just do it over and over again, regardless of what's going on. In Philippians 3.1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul is in prison. He's saying rejoice. You know, rejoice in the Lord always. Yeah, I want you to be excited for Jesus Christ. Paul is in prison and he's writing this to me? I know if I'd have wrote a letter, I would say, whoa, is me. Get me out of here, please. Yeah, get, send me a package. <laughs> I've been there, done that, yeah. <laughs> That's another story. Anyways, uh, Psalm, 5, Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. Nehemiah 8.10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You want strength? Have joy in the Lord. Just be excited about the Lord. Just, you know, and this is not this fake smile that you placed on, I'm just going to be happy. No. You know, walk around, it's okay, do whatever you want to me, and, you know, have this fake. No. This is a real joy that only comes from inside your heart which is filled with the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit's joy that is given it to you. It's not something you can manufacture, beloved. And this world has got all kinds. Your life, your life is heavy, I know. And there are things that have happened in your life that are happening in your life that will happen in your life that you're going to need to dive deep into this joy that only comes from the Holy Spirit. And yeah, I'll tell you one thing, most Christians don't have it. I know disciples do, but most Christians don't. In Deuteronomy 12, this is a concept that goes way back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 12, 18. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all you undertake and everything that you're under. I asked this one guy one time, he says, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances. I go, what are you doing under the circumstances? You know that being under the circumstances is kind of like being under a mattress. Get out of there. 
Stay out of those circumstances. Because there's going to be a lot of circumstances in your life. Psalm 2.11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. Don't, <laughs> don't disrespect the Lord in your joyfulness. Oh, me and the man upstairs. Where You know, he's not the man upstairs. Oh, me and the big guy. Yeah, he's not the big guy. He is God. Almighty creator of this universe that wants to have an intimate love relationship with you. You have the honor and the privilege of connecting with the creator of this world. He's not the guy that you just come to, your daddy. He's not this whatever you genie or you just come to when you're in need. He wants to have a genuine, you come and you have joy with rejoicing, with fear and trembling. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and over and over again in the Old Testament. Be glad, O Israel of Zion. Be glad. You will rejoice in the Lord. Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And he's telling the people, that, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. In Luke 23, the same thing. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Luke 10, 20, rejoice that your names are written in the in heaven, in the Lamb's book of life. If nothing else, that's a great reason to rejoice. In spite of what this world has. Over and over again, we see it in the Old Testament. Philippians 2.18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Again, out of prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. James 1.2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. These are people that were being persecuted. These trials that they were experiencing, it wasn't one of those, oh man, I can't find a parking anywhere, Lord. You know, I, I can't believe my boss is yelling at me again. Oh, I'm the trials that I go through, Lord. No, these guys were having their property taken away, their children put in jail and taken from them. They were literally persecuted with sticks and stones because of their commitment to Christ. And James tells them, count it all pure joy. And beloved, a, a Christian couldn't do that. A disciple can. In this you rejoice, First Peter, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Again, Peter's doing the same thing. You're being grieved by the trials that you're going through. First Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you, as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And this rejoicing, this joy is just one of the things that we do because, well, we love God because of what He's done for us. We need to pray without ceasing is the second thing. Pray without ceasing. And that, again, there are a lot of verses that just go to that. In Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times, Paul says. Basically, another way of saying pray without ceasing. At all times. In the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Again, in 4.12, Colossians 4.12, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And uh, in 2 Thessalonians, we'll see the same thing in 3.1. It says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This praying is not just praying rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for my grub. This praying is not praying, now I lay me down to sleep. This praying is not even, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's not this rote memory prayer that you pray every time that you sit down to eat, go to, go to sleep, or when you're in trouble. 
This prayer is a communication, talking with God on a regular basis, just communicating with Him, making it an appointment in a time. As a disciple, that's one of the things that a disciple does. We'll go praying. And the last thing I want to share with you is give thanks in all circumstances, not just in some of the circumstances, not just once a year for Thanksgiving, in all circumstances, in everything that happens in life. In Colossians 2.7, he says, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Ungratefulness is the worst sin that you can have. Being ungrateful. Being ungrateful for what God has given you. Thanks. We have to be thankful for everything. We have our bare necessities. Yeah, but I don't have what my neighbor has. Who cares? I do. <laughs> I want it. Well, see, now you're being ungrateful. Can you be grateful for what you have? I don't have a spouse. I don't have children. I don't have uh, uh, whatever the case may be. I don't have a car. I don't. People are saying, and so, but you do have two legs. It's like the guy that used to cry because he had no shoes until he met a man that had no feet. And we have to be grateful for what we have. You know, we here in the United States, we are, even though it is so chaotic and whatever, over two-thirds of the world would love to have your problems. Our garbage disposals eat more than most of the world does on a daily basis. We throw away more food than people have to eat in most parts of the world. Yeah, but I live in a, in a house with one bedroom. You, you, you have a house? People would say most of the world. Yeah, well, it only has one bedroom. You have a bedroom, like to yourself? Yeah, but I got to share it with my brothers. You got brothers? Yeah, you know, and, and we have to sleep on, on, on this one bed. You mean up off the ground where the animals can't crawl all over you? Inside of a house? You, 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 have, a, you have a bed? Yeah, and, and only one blanket. You got a blanket. Hmm. It's amazing when you start to, when you stop to and think about what God has blessed you with, that we can just thank Him, Lord. You know, I've got food. I've got shelter. I've got my family. You know, and yeah, I might not get along with all of them, but at least I got them. Got somebody to make fun of. <laughs> Give thanks to the Lord, the psalmist says, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything, for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. Now, the part that I wanted to get to was God's will. And this is going to take me some time. But there are some things that God says that are His will. And I'm just going to very, you know, I, you need to know this. Because, and we're going to go over this next week, just kind of, just recap on it. God's will is you, everyone be saved. He desires everyone to be saved, First Timothy 2, 3, and 4. He desires that none shall perish. But we know that many are going to perish anyway, 2 Peter 3.10. He desires that you be spirit-filled. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God's will. He, he, his will is for you to be sanctified. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God desires for you to be submissive to the authorities. Be subject to the Lord, uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperors or supreme or governors sent by him to punish those who are evil and to praise those who do good. And Peter says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance 
of foolish people, suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust your soul to be. God wants you to suffer. That's part of God's will for your life, to suffer for Him. He wants you to be satisfied. What we just talked about, thankful. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. There it is. You know what God's will is right there. But people look at this and say, uh, yeah, okay, but what's God's will for my life? You know, who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go? What job do I have to have? Where do I move? What's God's will for my life? How, how do I find God's will? It's not about you, beloved. I'm sorry to say, it's not about you. And everybody wants to find God's will for their life. You know, it's written right there in black and white. God just told you what his will is. Okay, um, but, you know, and, and I lose people here. Because I don't want to suffer. I want to be happy. God wants me to be happy. So what's his will for my life? And like I said, we'll, we'll touch on this even more so next week. But it goes back to what Paul is saying. I'm writing to you, Paul says. I'm sharing these words with you because this is what we need to do. Paul says, I'm not there. So do these things. I want you to do rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances because this is God's will. For you to rejoice and pray and give thanks. But, but what's, what's God's will for my life? Who do I marry? What job do I have? Well, pray. Rejoice. Give thanks. See, I don't, I, I don't believe that God, you know, and this might sound a little bit sacrilegious. I don't think God really cares where you work at or even who you marry, as long as it's not an unbeliever. He wants you to marry a believer, that's for sure. You know that already. And as far as your job, as long as it's not illegal, unethical, or immoral, as long as it's not keeping you from God, you know, I, it, as long as what you, wherever you work, you bring glory to God in everything you do, in everything you do, bring glory to God. Let me ask you to stand. Father in heaven, I want to thank you again. I know we went a little over today. But Father, there is just a, so much that we need to learn from this portion of scripture that Paul has for us. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue to grow in you, that we learn how to apply these truths to our lives. Because ultimately, the reason you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us was not just to be happy. He came to save and remove that sin. And for those that are, recognize and understand the sacrifice that you have given us, and those that understand who you are and what you've done, we know, Lord, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that it was more than we could ever think or imagine and the pain and the suffering that you went through. And so today, Lord, we take this moment just to recognize and remember the blood that was shed on our part and the body that was given for us as we share this communion, this Lord's table. I pray that we can reflect and look upon that cruel cross where you were murdered by evil men but it was according to your will, according to your plan. And you were laid there, Lord Jesus, by our Father in heaven. And you were persecuted and you were prosecuted until it pleased the Father. And it pleased the Father to do so, as Isaiah would tell us. For a sinner like myself, and that in itself, Father, just humbles me to no, no end. And I pray that each one of us can understand that. So when we are asked to 
to rejoice. Always pray without ceasing and giving thanks in all things. When we are asked to encourage the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak, and if we see ourselves anywhere in these, uh, these sheep, Lord, I pray that you help us to repent right now and to repent and to move to you. For this is not of any good for any of us, especially for the leadership of the church, to be idle, to be faint-hearted and worried and weak and, and even evil, trying to repay evil for evil. So, Father, help us to, to learn to, to grow together and to follow your word. As we take this bread and we take this juice, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have what's called, we have what's called open communion. Um, you know, we, we are we have what's called open communion. If you've committed your life to Christ and been baptized according to the scriptures, we ask that you join us uh, for our communion. Uh, estamos ahorita vamos a pertenecer de el, la mesa del Señor y esta mesa del Señor es para los que han recibido a Cristo Jesús como su Señor y Salvador y reconocen que esto no solamente no es no es uh, un algo de la sangre de Cristo, pero es parecido es no es parecido, pero es un símbolo que uh, nosotros usamos para poder conocer que Cristo murió por nosotros. Y el pan no es el cuerpo de Cristo, pero es un símbolo de su cuerpo. Y es para nosotros, para recordarnos lo que Él hizo en la cruz de Calvario por nosotros. And so therefore, this juice is not, uh, we, we recognize that it doesn't give us any extra benefits, any extra blessings. We recognize that it is a symbol of his blood, and it's not um, his actual blood, and this is not his actual flesh, but it is just a symbol that he has said to do this in remembrance of him. Así es que en este momento, si quieren pertenecer con nosotros, pueden ir atrás y pertenecer y agarrar una copa con el panecito que tenemos en la copita. If you want to partake with us in this Lord's Supper, I'd like for you to just to go to the middle and go out to the back and receive a juice and a bread. I was just instructed that we have a Spanish-speaking couple here today, so I'm going to share this in Spanish first and then go back into English. Me apenas me avisaron que habla español y quiero pertenecer, aunque sea esta parte con ustedes en español, si me permiten. La Biblia nos dice, porque yo recibí del Señor lo que también os he enseñado, que el Señor Jesús, la noche que fue entregado, tomó pan y habiendo dado gracias, lo partió y dijo, tomad, come de esto, esto es mi cuerpo, que por vosotros es partido hasta este, esto hoy en memoria de, de mí. What, uh, what Paul said, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's all take together. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this wafer. Gracias, Padre, por este panecito que nos recuerda de tu cuerpo. We thank you, Father, that we know that it's not your body, but it's a symbol of your body that was laid on the cross. Sabiendo que es un símbolo de tu cuerpo que perteneció a la cruz de Calvario para nosotros. Father, we just thank you for this remembrance. Gracias, Padre. En Cristo Jesús. Amen. I'll take. Asimismo, también tomó también la copa después de haber cenado diciendo, esta copa es el nuevo pacto en mi sangre. 
Haced esto todas las veces que la beberías en memoria de mí. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this juice. And we thank you for this cup that, remember, that reminds us of the blood that you shed on, on the cross for us. Damos gracias, Padre, por la sangre derramada para nosotros en Cristo Jesús, en la cruz. We thank you, Father, that it was a cruel death, and it was just the way that you had penned it through the writer, the author, Isaiah. And we thank you, Father, that we are now able to take this. Bless this juice and the vine that it comes from. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody take Lord, we thank you once again. We got an insight today of the difference of a Christian and a disciple. And I pray, Father, that as we continue to grow, we recognize the difference. And we live it out the way we were supposed to from the very beginning. And now, Lord, Paul is instructing us on how to do so. And so we want to carry that with us. Thank you, Father, once again for today. Let the word dwell deeply within our hearts. And make that change that needs to happen in our life, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen, amen and amen. All right. We'll be with you.